Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. of CD game show trolls The smiling lie of the televised hive The witches are watching with their thousand eyes Witches are watching with their thousand eyes We smell rotten teeth that speak beyond belief. A stick inside their Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 44. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <coughs> The Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. Just a reminder that Comic Fest is coming up this Saturday, October 26, at your local comic book store. And as far as Fun Ideas Productions goes, I'm still waiting on proofs for my Warren Kramer book. I'm still getting material on my TTV underdog book for my co-author, Victoria Biggers. I am waiting for final coverage image for my Monkey Solo book by Scott Shaw. And I'm working on my Mad book. My girlfriend Abby and I have gone to business together with Light Up Your Life Travel Agency. So if you need to book a cruise, contact us. More details soon. Our guest today worked for Harvey Comics, Marvel Star Comics, Archie Comics, and many more. He has written his own children's books and created his own characters that are part of an educational series that's uh, connected with schools. And here he is, Angelo DeCessory. Okay, on the phone I have Angelo DeCessory. So how are you today, sir? I am very well, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And, um, you know, we've spoken many times before, but I'm going to start with the inevitable question I always ask at the beginning is, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in drawing and how you ended up at Harvey Comics. Oh, okay. Well, um, I think the way I got interested in comics was the way most uh, comic book fans did. I just, um, you know, uh, growing up in the 60s, there wasn't a lot to do besides reading comics, uh, so, um, you know, naturally, we had great comics, so just fell in love with them, you know, uh, and we had, you know, something for every age. Uh, I think I went from, you know, I had a sister who read, you know, three years older than me who read comics, and so I would read her comics <laughs> uh, as soon as I was old enough, and uh, we went from, I think, from Little Lulu and Harvey to Archie to Marvel and DC. That was the progression. Right. <laughs> And did, did you read other things like the humor magazines and, or the monster magazines or anything else, or oh, just mainly comics? Absolutely, com- I was oh, so obsessed everything. with monsters. <laughs> absolutely, I was obsessed with with famous monsters of Filmland, and you know, uh, and Mad Magazine. Uh, just couldn't believe that these publications were were being put out by adults, you know, for kids. <laughs> I thought, you know, what wonderful people these adults must be to to spend their life, lives making these books for us. You know, <laughs> uh, so it was, it was great, great. Never thinking I'd, I'd one day be one of those adults, one of those arrested development no, writers. Uh, did I say that? <laughs> one of those kids adults get to do um, so how did this, uh, you know, natural progression, I guess, but uh, how did this uh, uh, parlay into drawing your own uh, comics or uh, writing? Or You've done both, right? Is that correct? Well, I, 
consider myself a writer, but I did draw from a very early age. Uh, apparently from the time I was three, I was drawing maybe on the walls or something, but um, <laughs> I, I, I always you know, try to illustrate my, my writing. You know, if I started off copying the stuff that I saw. If I, if I saw something funny in Mad Magazine, I tried to do my own version of something or in the comics. I really st- started at a very young age making my own comics and, and showing them to my friends and to my family. Mm-hmm. And I got a good reaction. So, you know, uh, they, they're to blame. They encouraged me. <laughs> that's how I ended up <laughs> being a poor, a poor artist because people kept telling me that I was doing, you know, a good job. <laughs> Right. But at least you're in New York. I mean, it's like me growing up in California. Now I'm in Oregon. You know, it's like the the whole industry was there. And it's like, you know, at the time it intimidated me. I was like, I don't know if I want to move there. So you were right there. So, I mean, how did that make you feel? I mean, was it just an easy just knocking on doors or how did you get your start there? Well, it was easy in a sense because when I, um, I started to, um, when I started to go into comics, uh, I actually had been unemployed. I was I had dropped out of college and I told you this night, uh, I was sitting at home and I picked up the Daily News, New York Daily News, and I read an article that talked about a comic convention in New York and there was an, uh, an inker named Peter Cooper who said he worked for Harvey Comics. And I hadn't thought about Harvey Comics you know, in years. Mm-hmm. You know, once you stop reading, you move on. Right. Uh, and, and I said, well, they're still in business. I said, I can do that. I can write those comics. I can do those. So I, I just... With the with the um, uh, confidence and and ignorance of, of youth, I, I just walked. I took the train down to uh, you know Columbus Circle in New York, and I I walked and walked into the Harvey offices and said, "I'm looking for work. Yeah. Can you use me?" I, and uh, I, I met Leon Harvey, and uh, you know he was there and came to came out to meet me, which I thought also was strange. Um, he was the president of the company, talking to this nobody, and uh, and uh, he took me into his office and sat me down and said, uh, you know, draw the, he took out a comic book, he said, here, draw this. Mm-hmm. And it was hot stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I drew hot stuff, and he, he said, uh, wait a minute. And he went and he, he got Warren Kremer, and Warren, and I had no idea who Warren was, didn't know that he was the man who drew all those, those great comics for Harvey through the years, and someone I admired so much. And, and he said he liked my work also. And, and so they, they hired me to work in the, um, in the art department, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Right there, I was lucky. <laughs> and you were full time, or was that a freelance type gig? I forgot. I've... No, that was that was full time. Yeah, I made a hundred sixty-five dollars a week. Nineteen seventy-eight, I should say that. And I was happy to get it. Right, yeah, right. It was, it was great. Right. And uh, was, yeah, but, I'm sorry. Good. And uh, you mentioned Peter Cooper. He's the same guy who does Spy versus Spy now, right? And Mad. Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he's done Spy vs. Spy and Mad for like the last decade. Of course, now Mad's kind of like on shaky ground, so he may not have a job anymore, but he did up until pretty recently. So, okay. Because well, he's responsible for me for my getting into comics, you know, the, the way I did, so you know, mm-hmm. I wish him luck. Mm-hmm. And what, was he there at the time, or was he a freelancer? He was a freelancer, yes. He came in a few times. I don't know if I even mentioned to him. I might have that he was the one who, you know, new question I want to ask you is uh, you know it's like we had the recent passing of Ernie Cologne and uh, I don't know if you've heard that uh, so I was just wondering if you had any good stories or memories or anything you'd like to say about Ernie well um, yeah there was a memorial for Ernie uh, this Saturday uh, in Long Island Island, which I wasn't able to attend because I was up in Maine Mm. on vacation with my family Uh, but um, I'm sorry I missed it because yeah um, Ernie was a, a great artist I was lucky to, to know him and to you know I, I met him when I started working with Harvey in 78 and I was there only two years uh, but I got to know him uh, he was really a, a good man uh, a great artist he had he had terrific range mm-hmm. not many people can do what he did is to switch from you know funny cartoon style to to you know to illustrative uh, superhero style uh, you know with the greatest of ease and he was able to do that one of those few persons um, I really I didn't get to know him as well as some of the other ones uh, other friends of, at Harvey the other people there because he, he kind of kept his distance he wasn't someone that you could get that close to mm. but 
definitely admired him, and I liked him, uh, you know, as a person. So he he didn't mentor you, like, in the same way as, like, say, Warren did or anything like that? No, no. Warren was the man for me, because Warren, you know, his style was closest to the way I wanted to draw. Mm-hmm. And um, he had that more of a, um, like, uh, how can I put it? He had the more uh, simple style of cartooning. Not that, his, not that his drawings were simple, but, you know, Ernie was more, uh, even then, more of an illustrator mm. and leaned towards realism, and I shy away from realism. That's <laughs> in, my, in my work. Right. And in life, too, <laughs> apparently. Right. And we'll talk about some of your other projects that you've worked on over the years, but uh, I just, you know, of course, I always love the Harvey stuff, so I have to ask you about the Harvey stuff. <laughs> but... Um, when you were there, was Ernie always, uh, was he there the entire time you were there? or did, Because I know he always always kind of like a disgruntled person at times, and he wanted to branch off and do other things. But did he yeah, continue? Did he leave during your time there, or did he uh, stay that whole time? As far as I know, he he always freelanced while I was there. He came in and out. You know, he, his friends were, were Sid and Warren and Lenny Herman in the art department, so he'd come and hang out with them. Um, you know, he had he had issues with Sid. They were best friends, but, you know, Ernie uh, had to be pushed sometimes to get the pages. Done. He, he really didn't at that point. He really, I don't think, wanted to do the Harvey stuff as much yeah. as he had in the past. So he was trying to establish himself in the other world, in the, in the world of, you know, superheroes and Marvel and DC and the other independent uh, comics companies. And yeah. so he uh, he had to be pushed a little bit to get those. <laughs> he did a lot of Jackie Jokers. Right. Character that I really didn't care for, but that, that Yeah, that seems like his prime book once uh, it was established, you know, that he did, uh, that yeah. Richie Rich and Jackie Jokers, but, you know, yeah. then, like, it seemed like he had a prime book at everywhere, it's like he had John Carter, Warlord of Mars at Marvel, and uh, Amethyst was for a time at DC, and then uh, uh, Creepy and Eerie over at uh, Warren, so he did keep busy, it seemed like. Oh, sure, for sure, and then he had those series of graphic novels he did with Sid. Oh, yeah. I mean, now I'll miss him, too, because it's like, uh, he was always there if I had a question or something, which now I can't go to him to ask anymore, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like everybody has to go, but I, I always said, I always thought, you know, oh, he was one of the younger guys over at Harvey, and then now he's gone, you know. No, like, no, he, he was, you know, he, was, he wasn't young, actually younger, I mean, he was compared to maybe, said a little bit younger, but, um, uh, you know. Uh, I was surprised to find out how old he actually was. Yeah, but I mean, in comparison to say Warren or Howard Post or any of those guys that, that oh, right. passed away yeah. years ago, that's what I meant. You know, it's like, right. you yeah. know, so he always yeah. seemed like the younger guy, even though he was still older. You know, it's like, uh, and Sid Couchy and stuff like that. It's like, you know, well, now they're all well, gone. I hope you got to ask them all the questions you wanted to. You know, uh, well, I tried. You know, it's like the, the the actually the question I always was asking him seemingly in later years was uh, everybody's saying this is Warren Kramer. Is this Warren or you? You know, and it's like you know, it's right, like right. and he would confirm whether it was him or not. And nine times out of ten, he'd say, "No, nah, this is Warren. It wasn't me." So he was very very gracious that way. He never took credit for something he didn't do, and. Over the years, I, I'm pretty good at, at identifying him now, but it used to be very difficult for me, like other people, you know, because he he could draw like Warren spot on if he wanted to. Uh, but then later on, yeah, he, he kind of got into his own style. And, of course, you kind of knew which ones he did because they had kind of more mystery or intrigue or something like that. And, um, right. you know, that, and, and that's why I was asking you about that the other day, if you were there, but you were there after that, you know, kind of mid-70s time where they seemed to put that vaults of mystery element on everything, you know, that Harvey put out for a time. I guess that was the in thing to do in the 70s is have everything have that kind of mystery horror element. But, yeah, I'm um, sure you're right. Yeah. Sure but but even the other publishers did that. Archie did that for a time, and then Marvel was publishing a whole bunch of monster magazines and stuff like that, so it was just like something to do in the mid-70s. <laughs> right. Follow it. They were following the trend, you know, trying to, you know, appeal to what they thought the readers wanted to see at right. that time sure mm-hmm. so that explains some of the bad decisions they made also <laughs> like Harvey superheroes and things like that right um, was there anything that happened during the couple of years you were there that uh, that they were talking about but never really got off the ground to your memory you mean projects and 
anything. So. Yeah, for Harvey, you know, for even the, for the existing characters, or just brand new projects, or anything, or was it just pretty much status quo? Um, I, for the most part, yeah, it pretty much was status quo. I think um, they had already tried, like you said, some of the things that they thought would would you know maybe increase readership and things, and they hadn't worked out um, for the most part. Uh, I think they realized that the tried and true formula was the best way to go because when I was there, they pretty much did. You know, they had the only book that was kind of a little different was what were the um, they would team up two characters like they had Casper with Richie, mm-hmm. which I thought was an odd teaming, and that, those were written by Stan K exclusively, right. and they were full length book stories, as you know. So I mean, but there was nothing really that that radical that they were doing. No, no, yeah, not really. And um, I guess you were there when it was the Richie Rich explosion. I mean, what was that like? I mean, a lot of people ask about that. They, you know, it's kind of the butt of jokes. But then, since that time, other publishers have done that. There's been a zillion Superman publications, a zillion Batman publications. But that time, to have 30 titles, you know, with all Richie Rich on it, seemed very strange. I mean, was that strange to you, or is it just a job? Well, I understood what, what, why they were doing it because, you know, once Richie got popular, they tried doing, you know, more Richie books and t- kids were buying them. Yeah. So I guess the, the, the logic for them was let's see how many we can get kids to buy. <laughs> and so they just would stick a, a, a word next to, you know, Richie like billions or zillions or, you know, <laughs> Richie Rich stock, you know, stock exchange or Richie Rich, you know, um, you know. Uh, uh, it was anything you could think of, and they and they were selling. So, you know, uh, they kept doing it until until the sales started to decline. Mm-hmm. I guess, and then they had to cut back. Right, because I know a few they did cancel. Strange, yeah, yeah uh, prematurely, like uh, the Super Richie didn't last very long. It was a couple years, but you know things like that. Right, but that was but it like kept us employed. You know, kept us you know kept us working, kept me working because <laughs> there were so many books to work on and so many covers that needed to be you know. Uh, colored and, and you know whatever else I had to do there so it was worth it it was very so, good so what did you typically do there I mean did you do more writing or uh, more production work or what was the the main thing you did well uh, as a, a member of the art department while I was there I only did art department jobs I mean mm-hmm. in terms of uh, doing paste ups and making stats and uh, coloring some of the pages the covers and things or deciding on, on not the whole cover but you know, you know the logos and things um and you know odd jobs here and there my my harvey work was freelance you know mm-hmm. sid i went into sid and said i want to you know i want to write some stories and so he let me write a story and then i said i wanted to draw my own stories now and he, he let me do that i mean I, the pay wasn't great of course it was harvey it was kind of the lowest paying company then but <laughs> uh you know it was great experience and great opportunity and the and the buzz of a lifetime <laughs> to see my stories come out in a comic book you know right. just like and have to think about kids reading it the way I read comics as a kid you know it was just it was mind blowing to me mm-hmm. so you know that was great that was worth any price you know no matter how little low it was it was worth it for sure now were you allowed to uh, draw your own stories from the beginning or were you only allowed to uh, write them or what, what did you do first I guess uh, it was kind of fast track there because I I wrote um, I wrote a couple and then with Warren helping me, I drew a couple of single pages. Mm-hmm. And then once they saw I could draw the characters, and once they saw that I could write for them, uh, I was able to go to Sid and say, you know, Sid, can I draw and write a complete story myself? Mm-hmm. And he said, okay. <laughs> you, know, which, you know, surprised me, but, you know, it was great. So I, I did, you know, I did a 10-page parody of the Maltese Falcon Actually, that was a question I was going to ask, but you said you answered it. It's like, how long a stories did you write? So you did a ten pager. Was that like the average length you would do, or did you do like one pagers or a combination? Or no, no, I, I actually I didn't do that much work for them overall because um, I wasn't there, you know, beyond two years. I I did a ten pager, uh, two part story, uh, and then I did a fifteen page, uh, three part story, uh, the Merry Adventures of Richie Hood, and those were the two main stories that I ended up doing for them. I started a third, and then I ended up leaving. And oh, I think okay. I have a uh, completed, I think I might even have some of the pages here that I started working on. But I, yeah, I just, I wanted, to, the pay was so poor, and I had a, a, an opportunity, you know, at King Features, so I had to, I had to leave. Okay. And then what did you do at King Features? You, you said that, so. Well, that was, was a job I got through Stan K, you know, who, the guy, the artist, uh, writer who did uh, the Casper, Richie Casper books. Right. Um, 
he recommended me uh, for a job at King Features, you know, which was, um, you know, better pay and a better job and everything. So, yeah, well, at, at King, I worked in the art department, just mm -hmm. like at Harvey, only instead of working on comic books, I worked on comic strips. Mm -hmm. And I did, you know, whatever was required there, you know, putting on the, the uh, Bende, the, you know, the gray tone and, and making stats and, and finishing art and correcting art. And then, you know, occasionally I, I would start to, you know, I'd get, the writing and drawing work also for them. Hmm. Work. Okay. And did you ever try to get your own comic strip at that time? Or was it just too um, busy? <laughs> I had, you know, I, that's a good question. I did have a comic strip that I had written uh, when I got to Harvey, which is about Catholic school. Oh. You know, unfortunately, not realizing that that would be like the last kind of strip that a, a newspaper would publish. You know, it was a funny strip called Philip. And <clears throat> but then while I was a king, of course, everyone was trying to get a strip done. So I, I, no, but I don't think I actually wanted to do a strip time. I was so into comic books. I was doing freelance mm -hmm. for Harvey and then, of course, for Star Comics. That was where most of my time was taken up. So um, I did give them a, uh, a strip when I left King, which they rejected. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But that was it, because I was also doing, as you know, the Cats and Jammer Kids <laughs> for King Features right. when I was there. Um, and what did you do on that again? You were just writing, or did you do both? I forgot. Oh, I did both, yeah. Oh, that's they, right. They, okay. They, they, had to, they, they needed someone right away to do the strip. They said, yeah, can you do this? And, and so I said, yeah, sure. It was an extra $200 a week <laughs> in addition to my salary. So, I mean, that was an enormous amount of money back then in the 80s. And uh, how long did you do that one? I probably asked this before, uh, but... Jamma Kids, I did from 1980, the end of 1981, like December in 81, till I think 80, um, the beginning of 86. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's about four years plus, right? If my mm -hmm. math is correct, I'm probably not. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that's about four, four years plus, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've never really asked you much about that, but it's like, did you have any direction on it, or they just said, go for it, or uh, did they give you any restrictions, you can't do this or that or the other? Yeah. Another good question, Mark. Um, I, when I first started, they wanted me to imitate the style of my predecessor, Mike Sandage, and I did not care for his style. Because oh. he really didn't have a style. He was just, he was tracing old Doc Winter strips. So uh, yes. So I said, that's why, that's why they let him go. And I, so I said, I'm going to revive this strip. I'm going to make it look like it did in its glory days, in the days of Dirks and H.H. and her. And as soon as I did a couple of those, uh, the Bill Yates, the comic editor said, nope, you can't do that. It's too radical a change. He said, you have to draw like Mike Sands. And I, so I started to do that. I got discouraged and I, I kind of lost interest a bit and I did one really bad strip and he gave me hell for it. And I said, you know what? He's, I said, if, I, if, I'm, if they're going to take this away from me, I'm going to go out doing it the way I want to. So very gradually, I, it reintroduced the, the style I wanted to do, the H.H. Nurse style, and uh, they didn't notice. Wow. In a few, a couple of months, it, would look, it you know, looked as close to Nur and uh, as, you know, I could do it. And that really, you know, was great, because I got to do it the way I wanted to, writing, you know, and drawing. And also, you know, I got to um, give the strip a little life back. It had once been the greatest strip in the world, and, you know, it really mm -hmm. lost its luster. I got to revive that a bit. That was good. Right. And I then when you le when you left it, was it on good terms, or they just said, time for you to go, and we're getting another artist? Or? Oh, oh, no, no. Well, King's Feature, well, that, like I said, that was a freelance job. No, I, I wanted to stop doing it. I, I it reached a dead end, I, artistically. Yeah. I was tired of, and plus, they, had the, they were always, the captain was always spanking the kids, and, you know, <laughs> that wasn't appropriate anymore. Yeah. <laughs> really. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I did it for that many years, and then I said, but I can't do this. this I, I have other things I want to say with my art, not, right. not you know, Hans and Fritz. Although I, did, I loved the strip, and I loved, you know, doing it. It was, mm -hmm. it was a great learning uh, experience for me. Yeah, and I know they kept it on for a while longer after you left, but I think now they don't do it anymore at all, right? Is that correct? Oh, no. I'm not sure. I know High Eisman took off, and he did it for many years. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's still done. Like that. Yeah, I think High Eisman's on, uh, what is he doing now? I think he does Gasoline Alley now, of all things, you know. So he, he oh, yeah. but he's switched around and he's done a billion different things <laughs> over the years. So, oh, but okay. yeah, oh, good to hear. I'm glad he's still working. Yeah, uh, I talked to him a couple of years. Ago. I should probably give him a call again. You know, he's in his nineties, but he's still working, as far as I can tell. So, oh, good, uh, it gives hope. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, yeah, he, he was he was a joy to talk to. I talked to him about Bunny because that was his big Harvey connection, of course. But uh, he's ghosted so many comic strips over the years. It's like you know, in fact, he revealed ones that I didn't even know he did. So I was like, wow. <laughs> wow, didn't know that myself. I have to read up about him. Yeah, a little wiki. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, any chance, probably not, because you probably don't have the rights, but any chance of getting your Cats and Jammer kids into a, a compilation book or anything like that? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, because I, I recently um, uh, connected with uh, uh, David Gerstein. Uh, I don't know if you know him. He's oh, yes. Comic book historian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he's big on the Cats and Jammer kids, and he included, you know, my strips, and he put an article about me in a book that was published, I think, in Norway. Mm. And I told him I had my originals still. You know, they gave me the originals, which are my, so. Uh, and I'm actually in the process now of trying to sell some of them to see if anyone has any interest mm. uh, in, in buying them to raise money for my TV thing that I'm working on, my flip TV thing. So, uh, yeah, but the, in terms of compilation, though, you're right. I, I don't have the rights to publish them yeah. uh, because that belongs to King, I would mm-hmm. imagine. And, of course, since it's kind of obscure nowadays I suppose there's no chance for it even though I'd, I'd enjoy a compilation like that you know even if it was just an overall Cats and Jammer Ca- Captain and the Kids history book type thing you know or something like that you know yes, you know. yes. oh yeah. yeah but he, he talked about doing a, a comic though with the Long John Silver character that, that appeared in uh, the Cats and Jammer Kids so mm-hmm. he, he's trying to get the Norwegian company to, to uh, sign off on that and if, hmm. if he, they do then I'll be illustrating it I think he'll be writing it alright very so, good well, we're good but anyway uh, uh, David uh, Gerstein I've known forever uh, you know uh, we used to go to the San Diego Comic Con way back when in the early 90s before either of us were anybody I don't know if I'm anybody now but you know, it's like he, he he seems to get his uh, uh, hands on everything historical about you know Felix the Cat or Oswald the Rabbit or something, anything that's kind of old-fashioned like that, and seems to revitalize right. it. So, but yeah. So my question was: is just totally uh, non sequitur, going a totally different direction. I was just saying, let's talk about the Beatles. <laughs> so, oh, you know. okay, sure. <laughs> I'm um, a um, we've talked before about the Beatles on various interviews and stuff like that, and um, right. I was just uh, wanting you to to recollect your experiences again, you know, about, uh, you know, where you were when you first heard of them and how you got interested in them, because I know you're a pretty huge Beatle fan, just like myself, so. Well, I don't know how you would measure a huge Beatle fan, but I will say that I have Mark Lewison's book, um, Tune In, on uh, Audible Books, and I've listened to it at least ten times. Oh, wow. All 43 hours of it, including once in reverse from last chapter to first, so I guess that qualifies me as a Oh, wow. <laughs> or else it qualifies me for something else, which I don't want to talk about. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, but yes, uh, I, I, um, I was there in 64 when they first landed in America. Uh, I, was a, I was eight years old, living in the Bronx, and, um, you know, uh, we were listening to the radio all the time, the transistor radios or whatever we had in the house, and we heard all of this, you know, pop music coming on, and then suddenly there was I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was like nothing else we'd ever heard. And it just, you know, totally blew our minds. It just, you know, what is the sound? It was, it was the girl group sound electrified, basically, but, you know, on such a high level. And so all of us became very excited and wanted to know who these people were. I hadn't seen them. And uh, I was only eight. I went, I picked up the copy of the Daily News and they were on the cover. And I thought that they were um, airline hostesses. <laughs> they had long hair and dark suits, and in my eight-year-old mind, that's what that's what the airline hostesses look like. And then it, I read the cat and said, "Oh, Beatles, the Beatles." Okay. So, um, so, so that was, you know. And then, uh, you know, we saw them in Ed Sullivan the next night, Sunday night, and uh, you know, our lives were transformed from that moment on. They were just, you know, they had this that magic, the charisma, and you know, the great music, and you know. It was just, it was a, it was a uh, transfiguration, you know, that's the only way I could describe it mm-hmm. for most of us watching. You know, we just felt, totally fell for them. Now, did you buy everything that came out from then on to the end of their career, or did you just kind of pick and choose? No, no. Uh, I, I, I bought everything, we bought, my sister and I bought everything up to, I think, um, and through, and through help, I think we stopped with Robert Soul because then we thought that sound was getting a little weird. <laughs> we liked the early 
sound better. No, it's true. Yeah. And I also, you know, I was like 10 or 11 then and uh, started to get more into baseball mm. and started to lose interest in music. Mm. So, you know, combination of them getting their sound changing and their look changing and, and you know, getting older as a kid and starting to get into sports that, you know, I kind of dropped away from them for a while and then came back to them, I guess, in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, after when the White Album came out, I think yeah. so. That's um, interesting. Uh, did you ever see the book? It came out in the 70s called Growing Up with the Beatles. Uh, I heard of it. I don't think I own it, although I own a lot of books, including yours. Yeah. But, uh, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the author's name is Ron Schaumburg, but he writes from the perspective of being a fan in the United States. I don't think he was in New York. I think he was elsewhere. But uh, being a fan in the United States, growing up with the yeah. Beatles, and he had the same experience you did. It's like around Rubber Soul... He he thought they were looking and sounding kind of too weird, and so he got out of it for a while. And uh, yeah, I, I I think it was it might have been after Sgt. Pepper, but you know somewhere around the you know White Album or something. Yeah, he came back into it and became a big fan again. You know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Yeah, but you know, it did it did turn some of their fans off when they you know when they started to change, hmm. only because we weren't you know we weren't ready for that. I think, and also um, I think their music was started to be for older, you know, like for teenagers, and we weren't quite yet teenagers. Um, the, I think the best author in terms of capturing that era is Nicholas Schaffner. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. his books, The British Invasion, and his book about the Beatles, I think are the best, you know, if you want to read about someone who lived it through that time and had the full fan experience, I think yeah. his books are great. And that book, the one you're talking about, Beatles Forever, and then the other one that I mentioned, you know, was some of the first ones I became a fan in the 70s, of course, so they were all said and yeah. done. But, um, you know, there was still the excitement that they might get back together again, which unfortunately never really happened. But, uh, hey. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was... You didn't have to be there, Mark. That's the great thing about the Beatles. You didn't have to be there. You yeah. Can, you can jump at any time, at any age, at any year, and still appreciate them. Yeah. You know? And I, I am fascinated when, you know, young kids like them now. You know, it's like, uh, you know, for myself, I would say, well, at least they're all still alive and they're youth and they're young or whatever, youthful, I was going to say. And it's like, you know, now it's like, can anybody get into it? I mean, Paul's like almost 80. Ringo's eight, almost 80. You know, it's like, and the other two are yeah. gone. You know, it's like, but... You know, I guess it's like appreciating classical music or anything else. You don't need Beethoven around to appreciate it, you know. So, no, I get exactly, it. You know. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think the fact that that dreadful movie yesterday is doing so well around the world, <laughs> simply because it has, it has Beatles music, I mean, that's a sign that's of their power, not really. I, I'm sorry to say, it, I thought it was an awful movie, uh, and I thought it was a disservice to them. Uh, you know, I almost walked out of the theater, but I was sitting in the middle aisle. Oh. <laughs> I actually liked it, but I, I could I could see your point. Yeah, I could totally see your point. Um, the, the one that I had trouble with, which actually I liked it better the more recent time I saw it, was Across the Universe that came out about ten years ago or so. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah that, I thought that was a better film. It didn't try to be anything more than, you know, a series of Beatles songs, you know, presented in, a, I guess, a way to appeal to current generation. But, yeah. Uh, yesterday tried to, you know, tried to be more, and, it, and it, I think it... it it really did them did them a disservice because it made it seem as though they only their only contribution to the world was music. And you oh, I know see. Yeah, it's okay. much more than that. Yeah, much more than that. I get it. You know, like, the, the Rolling Stones existing without the Beatles is is ludicrous. <laughs> admit that was kind of funny, you know, when he's doing the Google searches. Oh, it was very funny, but John Lennon would have, would have been, would been turning in his grave if he saw that. So, you know, you know he, he felt that the Stones copied everything the Beatles did, right. you know, right. so he, he would have laughed at that. <laughs> so, um, I, I guess I, I enjoyed it more than you, only from the standpoint is I had a few laughs with it, but, you know, yeah, it, it can be kind of cringeworthy material, I admit, if you, you're like... Oh, it was try- very funny. It yeah, was a funny yeah, film. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the whole premise of the, of the world being the same, except for not having the Beatles music, you know, practically, is just, right. you know, it's, it's just doesn't, it shows a lack of understanding of yeah. their impact on society, right. which was, you know, immeasurable. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, quick question. So when when you started, uh, get it, it's not a quick question here. I'm asking a long time. Uh, <laughs> when you started veering away from the the Beatles and going into baseball, I mean, did you uh, follow music at all? Like, did you ever think of the Monkees or any of the other groups, or you just were completely out of it and just solely into baseball uh, at that point? No, see, back then, you know, it, um, it was considered uh, like. The, uh, this was the hippie era and yeah. if you were into sports like I was hanging out with my friends and they were all kind of jocks and and uh, you know into sports and things like that it, it, it was considered uh, you know another world to, like be interested in you know the the, um, the, the uh, flower power music and hippie <laughs> stuff and everything so we, we we tried to stay away from that I did hear the music because I had an older sister and she did play the radio and she we did watch TV and stuff but I had really very little interest, and I I'm, I regret it because mm. now it's some of my favorite music. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so, but uh, you know, unfortunately, I was influenced by my environment. Yeah, and they were kind of anti-Beatles, anti, you know, mm. hippies, anti-stuff. You know, which was, which is you know, something. You know, uh, we all grow up, uh, and we all you know live and learn. So. Right. Uh, during those years, uh, like, did you always have aspirations to be a writer or an artist, or did you want to be a professional ball player or a musician or anything else? Oh, no, 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 never anything but an artist. No, oh, okay, I'm just kind of curious because yeah, you know, no, if you get, no, no. you know, some people get so obsessive. I want to be a, a a musician this week, you know, and then you find out how difficult it is or whatever. It's like, okay, I'll go back to being an artist or what, you know. <laughs> Which no, no, for a couple of years I wanted to be a skydiver, but I have a fear of heights, so that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, it was all I could really do was was to draw and write stories, and and people liked what I did, so I I thought somehow some way I'd be able to make a living at it. Mm -hmm. Was I wrong? No. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that there was never anything else for me. I, you know, I, yeah. I, my art saved my life pretty much. Mm -hmm. My art. And uh, after you were at King Features, um, where did you go? Was that back to Star, or were you working there concurrently when you were uh, writing for Star? No, I um, I only um, worked for Star as a freelancer. So, you know, when okay. when the guys at Harvey left, which I think I was partly responsible for, because I, I went, when, I, when I left Harvey, I went into Sid's office and said, you know, I can't work for this kind of money anymore. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, the, the, the <laughs> yeah, and, I, and they kind of looked at me, and I think they kind of, and then I left, and I think that shocked them because we had, I had been doing so well there in terms of, you know, the artwork and everything. Mm -hmm. The fact that I would just leave and say that to them got them thinking, like, what are we doing here? What are we doing working for the Harveys so that they're not, you know, w without getting credit? I said to them, you know, you don't, you don't even get artist credit on the stories. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's crazy. And I, I may not be, you know, really responsible for it, but I think I might be. <laughs> so, you know, because not long afterwards, I heard that they were thinking of leaving Harvey and forming the, uh, going over to Marvel. So yeah. um, I might have been the catalyst for that. I hope I was anyway, because it was a good thing. <laughs> it needed to get away from that place. Right, right. Um, it is kind of an interesting theory. It probably is true, you know, uh, because, you know, I obviously wasn't there, but, uh, you know, when I've done my histories and everything of going through and interviewing everyone, it seems like, yeah, at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, there was just, it, just you know, litigation lawsuits with everyone, you know, like Fred Rhodes didn't like it that he was not getting paid for sad sack reprints and, uh... Right. Uh, the family was fighting with each other, and you know I disclose it all in the book and everything like that. And yeah. it's like, uh, so yeah, yours. If it wasn't a catalyst, it certainly was part of the whole thing going wrong <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, I, 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 at the least, I gave them a push in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I showed them how a younger person, a younger artist in the business, you know, felt about the company, and and certainly at Marvel at that time, they were giving credit to artists. Right. So I could see that, and I could, didn't understand why Warren Kremer was not getting credit for his magnificent work with right. his books. It just made no sense. Right. <laughs> um, so how did you get uh, back in with Sid and everybody else first started? Did he call you up, or did you find out about it? How did that work? Oh, yeah, he called me. He said, we're, you know, we're forming a new company, and you know, we want you to do some work for us. And so, yeah, so I walked over, and there I was at Marvel. You know, it was so strange to be in a more kind of a corporate 
kind of comic book place, and mm-hmm. that was had so many people there. And but Sid had his own office, and they were considered really not truly part of Marvel because of Marvel, you know, they had the the fanboys kind of with all the superhero books and everything, and they they kind of looked looked their noses down on on you know the Harvey Star Comics line. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, well, yeah. So that's uh, I just went, and then we started working. I started working as if without missing a beat. I started working with Warren and with um, how we post, uh, writing stories, and uh, they would they would draw them. Mm-hmm. I started, and I did some drawing. Did some drawing myself. And we've just, we've discussed it before, but I'll, uh, you know, can you mention some of the books you worked on back then? Uh, for Star, yeah. yeah. I, well, most of my work was with Heathcliff, mm-hmm. uh, I, which I loved doing. Uh, you know, Heathcliff did George Gately strip. It was, it was actually done by John Gallagher, <laughs> uh, the great John Gallagher, yeah. the great uh, gag cartoonist ever. Um, and then I also worked on Royal Roy and Top Dog and. I did uh, Flintstone Kids. I did uh, Care Bears. <laughs> I did. Um, I think I did maybe one issue of um, Ewoks or Mad Bulls. I'm not. You know, I'm not really sure. I also worked on Camp Candy. Was that Star Comics also? Yeah, I was at the uh, tail end of it, but yeah. Right. Right. Um, because yeah, so, because so, eventually so, Star Comics just kind of morphed back into Marvel, and you know they continued on, but they just had the Marvel tag on the top. I think Alf did that. It was Star at the beginning, and is it, it was Marvel by the end. So, well, that's because Sid left. Yeah, Sid yeah, went to go yeah. back to Harvey. When Jeff Montgomery bought the rights to the Harvey characters, and Sid went back to doing Harvey character, Harvey stuff, mm-hmm. and then I went back to working with him. Okay, so, you know, at Harvey, and I stopped working for Star. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, they, they they did offer Tom DeFalco, who was running the uh, you know the comics, and he he did say, "Do you want to take over for Sid at Star Comics?" And I I, I couldn't at the time because my daughter had just been born, mm. and I was home with her, and I didn't want to do you know mm. work full time and then give it to over to a sitter. So that went that opportunity. Mm. That's too bad. But uh, it sounded like it may not have lasted anyway. So you probably did the correct choice. So. Yeah, but yeah, it was good. I'm glad you said that because I feel I do feel much better. Yeah. <laughs> no, the truth is, yes, it probably wouldn't have lasted. I probably I would have probably run it into the ground anyway. Well, I'm not saying that. But, um, it just seemed like Marvel was headed. It, it was kind of folding it closed anyway. You know, it's like a lot of titles started off in the beginning, and then over time, you know, it was probably difficult for Sid even because you know they cancel so many titles. You know, it's like, hey, we're just getting this going. Nope. Because uh, well, kids weren't buying comics anymore. Mark. Yeah, that's, that's true. That, they weren't buying those comics anyway. The computers had taken over, the video games had taken over, and so comics had become kind of passe. Mm-hmm. So, so when you got over to Harvey the second time, were you, were you writing more stories, or is it uh, uh, artwork or both, or what? Uh, this time it was just writing. Oh, okay. He had some artists lined up, and I, I think I did, like, uh, Police Academy, was that? Or was that Star? Um, mm-hmm. I, no, that was I, a Harvey I one. Did. Yeah, that was a Harvey one. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, and I did New Kids on the Block. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seems like everybody did and, New Kids uh, on the Block at some point. So. <laughs> and I did my best work ever. Yeah, it's true. Um, um, what do you mean by that? No. Uh, anyway, well, um, I I know a lot of people who did. I have Frank Hill. I you know Greg Bita. Uh, I knew Ernie. Uh, <laughs> and I think about the only one who didn't was probably because his post his stroke was Warren. He didn't work on New Kids, but right. you know everyone else that seemed to. It, you know, I think even Howie posted a, a New Kids story. You know, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was making a bad joke there, but no, I'm glad <laughs> oh. you missed it. Okay. Um, Whoops. <laughs> but I, I worked. On, I actually worked on Casper again. Uh, for him because he did a, um, a Casper comic for uh, England, which was a oh, magazine. Yeah. yeah. And that was tremendous fun. But my best work was for Beetlejuice that I did. I wrote it and Dave Manick drew it. And I think that was my best work uh, that I did for them. Okay. It was really, really, you know, a great property. I thought, and I'm, you know, and I really, and Dave's drawing was, was really um, wonderful. Did you do the entire series on that? Because I know there was like a mini series and then they did a proper series after that. You mean Beetlejuice? Yeah. Um, no, I Michael Gallagher also wrote for them, and I'm, oh, okay. it might be, maybe one or two others. I'm not really sure, but okay. most of the writing for Beetlejuice was was myself and Michael Gallagher. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Harvey went away again. Uh, so where'd you go after that? <laughs> well, uh, what happened was that uh, you know Sid just called me up one day and said, "There's no more work." Hmm. And I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so I was in you know, home with my daughter, and there was really 
you know, I, I didn't have any work. You know, it, it kept me going for a while. But so I um, gradually uh, found out that uh, I could work for Archie. Uh, I had a friend, Daryl Edelman. Someone gave me his name, and he got me my first Archie assignment. And you know, not not that I was a big Archie fan, but I had been growing up. And then, of course, you know, once you start getting into those characters, you know, they, they're such classic characters. So mm-hmm. I got to love doing those, those books. So I, uh, Victor Gorelli apparently liked my work very much mm-hmm. after I did my first story, and he started giving me more work. But, um, you know, that was, you know, all before I started my second career. Right. As a children's book. Right, right. So. And we'll get to that. But uh, at Archie, uh, did you write on any particular title or any character or just anything? Um, I, started with, I started with Little Archie. Mm-hmm. And then I just did all the characters, whoever they gave me. Uh, you know, Archie, Jughead, Betty and Veronica. I have tons of storyboards that I did through the years. I can't believe how many I have. So I must have done a lot of work for them. And most of them, I was fortunate that most of my stories were drawn by uh, Stan Goldberg. Oh, okay. It was, uh, you know, because yeah. Harlow, I think, by that time, was starting, I was on the outs with them mm-hmm. over the uh, Josie and the Pussycats. Mm-hmm. Um, well, see, I I must have read everything that you ever did, because, <laughs> except maybe right. Cat, except maybe Cats and Jammer Kids. But uh, no, as far as uh, comic books go, since I was not reading superhero stuff, and I read stuff all throughout the eighties and nineties, and it's like, oh, uh, you're the one. Yeah, I always see seem to see your name popping up everywhere. I go, man, this guy's prolific. So it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, you know, I have good range. I mean, I could, I'm able to switch from one you know, characters and other, and pretty much capture it by just, you know, reading a few issues. I've always been able to do that. That's why I loved, when I was a kid, loved Mad Magazine, because I, I was able to copy the styles, you know, of, the, of some of the artists and everything, and, you know, not, it, it was painstaking, but mm-hmm. I could do it, and that, that kept me going. So, yeah, that, that's, that's it. You know, until I, and gradually, in my 40s, found my own style. <laughs> it took me a while. Right. Now, did you ever work for Mad, or even try out, or, uh, DC or any of the other publishers or anything? Um, with Mad, no. Um, I think because the Mad that I loved the most was the early EC Mad with with um, my hero Bill Elder, uh, and also with Great Jack Davis and oh, yeah. Wood. those are my favorites. And of course, the greatest comic writer of all is Harvey Kurtzman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that that was the Mad. Uh, so I I really um, uh, uh, let me try to think. Uh, I'm sorry. Can you? I'll repeat the question. I'm sorry. Well, basically, yeah, I was saying, did you ever try out for Mad or for DC or any of the other publishers? No, no, that was all because they didn't do kid stuff. They did, and you know me. If it's not funny, I'm not interested. Okay. You know the work, right? I'll read it, but I won't write it or draw it. Um, I worked. I did do something for uh, the the, uh, comic line Valiant. I think it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did uh, Archer and Armstrong. I did Mm. a, a, a full length book for them and which was never published oh. because they went out of business <laughs> um, so that was one and I also did something for the final issue of National Lampoon which should have been the final issue of Lampoon like I've told you about which was a parody of Richie Rich called Richie Rich R-I-C-H-E yeah. and it was it's filled with all kinds of inappropriate stuff but uh, it paid well and I needed the money so I did this thing and uh, yeah. Warren found out about it and he said Ange do you draw this thing and I said yeah Warren he said well did you need the money I said, yeah. He said, oh, that, it's okay then. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> he forgave me. <laughs> I copied his pal to a T, and it was really, really bad. I mean, violent and, you know, everything. Yes. So, I do I, remember seeing that one, yes. <laughs> and although I found it, you know, in poor taste, I thought it was very funny. So it's like, but it's just like... I didn't write it. I didn't oh, you didn't write it. it. Oh, okay. I thought you did. No, no, oh. no, no. Oh, okay. No, no. I would, I would, no, I would have done a better job. I would have, I would have made it really like Richie and... I wouldn't have. I would have. I would have made the violence a little more acceptable and the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was happy to even get the job, so I didn't. I never just, you know, I just threw it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. That was it. Yeah, no connection otherwise to Marvel or DC. No, okay. except, except loving the characters. Yeah, I was. Like yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. It was like because you were already at Marvel. If there was ever an inclination to write for the superheroes or anything else, but you answered that so. <laughs> No, no. You know, if I if I thought I could do a good job, you know, equal to what they were doing, I might have tried. But I, it really wasn't my thing. To, you know, yeah. so I I didn't even you know think about it. I, yeah. I I was always looking for the next way to use to use my talent. You know, doing the thing that I wanted to do, which right. is write for kids. 
Right. And then, of course, that leads to, which you've talked with me before, but we'll discuss it again, your own projects, which seem to be highly successful. So talk about that. <laughs> well, that was, you know, when I was out of work, as I mentioned, when the copy book work stopped, my, my wife suggested that I write a children's book because uh, we read so many to my daughters, and some of them were just not good. And I thought, well, you <laughs> could do better than this. So some were great, of course, <laughs> Dr. Seuss and uh, some of the other ones. But uh, so I, I tried drawing, uh, writing, drawing and writing a comic, um, me, a children's book, and I put it aside for a while because I was, there was just too many pages. It was going on and on. And then a friend of mine, uh, Rick Parker, somebody you know, right, came yep. over and yep. his wife, Lisa Trusiani, who worked for Marvel, and they told me about it. A, Dr. Seuss contest that the Random House was looking for uh, a writer and uh, uh, artist, someone who could do both, you know, to, to write the next great children's book. So uh, I entered with that book I had been working on. I finished it off. It was called Anthony the Perfect Monster, mm-hmm. and it was based on my childhood experiences, you know, having a, uh, a lot of anger as a boy and uh, pretending to be a werewolf <laughs> and the monster connection. And uh, you know, uh, they announced a winner, and it wasn't me, uh, some woman in Tennessee. Uh, and so then I thought, well, okay, so I'll get my work back from them. And I called them up, and they said, well, we can't find it. I said, oh, my God. And that was like low <laughs> at the point of my life. Not only had I not won, but they lost all my work. And then they called back and said, we found it, and it, one of the editors has it, and we want to publish it. So I went from bottom to, you know, to the you know, top in, in a few hours and, and survived. <laughs> so... Um, and uh, so, yes, but that's what happens. And they said, you know, uh, we're going to publish it. If you can wait another year, we'll publish it as part of the beginner book series. Yep. I said, sure, fine with me. I'll yeah. wait a year. So, so it took a while, but we, I redid it, you know, with the help of an editor, Mallory Lohr, and, and, uh, and it came out as a part of Dr. Seuss' beginner book series. And the best compliment I got was from uh, Kathy Goldsmith, who was Dr. Seuss' um, art director. And she said, Ted would have liked this book. That was nice. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> um, any chance of that one? I, I don't think it's in print anymore. I did find a copy. I think the last time I talked to you, I said I didn't have one or something. But, you know, I did find a copy used. But uh, uh, well, I can send you one. Whenever you don't have anything that I did, let me know. And well, I'll, I'll take one, one if you I'll sign it. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. Of course, no. Sure. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk offline. Uh, but uh, uh, then you got into that other uh, long-running series where you're like, uh, you know, you told me about this before, but I wanted to refresh my memory. It's yep. like uh, where you're touring around the schools and uh, uh, what right. was what right. was that one? Uh, well, that was um, from Anthony, um, a friend of ours. My wife had a friend named Vicki Ergang who uh, was working at Brooklyn College, and she said, you know, you have this book that's out, and you're good with kids, because I used to play with her sons and stuff and entertain them, and she said, you know, you should be in the classroom. Do a, if you do a program, if you come up with a program, I'll put you in some schools. Mm. So I made up this program with my book and showing the kids the drawings and teaching them to draw some pictures. And uh, I started working in schools, and uh, just it was another, like one of those moments like the Beatles, only more personal. <laughs> I, everything just clicked. Everything fell into place. This is where I belong, in the classroom, with kids, teaching them, you know, showing them how to draw, how to write, mm-hmm. you know, making them laugh, you know, t- making them feel good about themselves. So uh, from that, I, I, um, I started uh, doing more schools. Every year I did a few more. And then uh, she, she, Vicky connected me with her friend named Tova Ackerman. And uh, Tova said, uh, I can put you in even more schools, so if you work for me at Puppetry and Practice, I said, fine. And she said, have you got any books that are unpublished? And I had written something called Flip's Fantastic Journal. Mm. And she looked at it and she said, oh, this is, this is great. She said, no, I'll publish this. So she, she printed up the first copies of that book, uh, you know, privately printed. And then I took one of those and brought it to Dutton Books. Uh, and, and they loved it, so they published the published version of that. So that's how I got that book going. And, and that really was, has been my life for the last 20 years, is uh, working with the flip books, flip journal books, mm-hmm. and working in classrooms uh, as a teaching author, I think that's what you call it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And do you still do new, new editions of those books, new volumes and things? Well, I did about 10, Mark, and I, okay. uh, including a comic book where Flip and his friends are superheroes, you know, saving the world from the polluter, crunch the dinosaur was polluting the earth, the crunchinator. And, um, you know, I, that, 
difficulties, and you know that's been keeping me going all these years. So, uh, you know, since then I, I've kind of stopped. I did one about manners a couple of years ago, and that was the last one oh, okay. that I did because um, we're running out of curriculum. So right, right. Well, I know the last time I talked to you about this is like you were still in the midst of doing them, so I, yeah, I was just curious right, if you right, kept going. Right. Yeah. You know. No, it's time to now. It's time to get flip on TV, and that's what I've been working. Oh, okay, on all right. Years. So you're still working with the yeah. characters, just a new avenue. So, tell us about this new project yeah. that you're trying to do then. Well, um, I was working with a, a musician in, uh, with one of my flip programs named Jody Gray, and mm. he saw the reaction that the kids had to flip, and he he's writes with, he composes for TV shows, uh, uh, for kids shows stuff, and he's great musician, a remarkable musician, could play many instruments, can write music in any genre, and he said, this has to be on TV. So he um, encouraged me to put together some kind of package, and I have a friend named Alan North, who's mm-hmm. like my best friend, and he does work for TV, he does a lot of writing, and he's head writing and show running, and he said he would help me, so uh, I started pitching this property, I, you know, I, I came up with an idea for a TV show. It wasn't my best idea mark because i really wasn't sure what a flip show should be mm-hmm. and so i kind of sent pbs and, uh, a, a, a lesser version of what it, the show's potential was and then uh, so but i learned from my mistakes and they gave, they critiqued it and they sent their ideas back to me and so from the, over the, over the last couple of years it's evolved and i really got it this time i, I turned it into a drawing show mm. and i i made this thing called a deck uh, which is uh, kind of like uh, a present, like a PowerPoint thing mm-hmm. that networks insist on having, and I did something like that, and I found a partner to help me uh, raise money, and the partner's name is Seth Jacobson. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Seth and I got together, and he became my business partner. Wow. We, started, <laughs> uh, we formed an LLC uh, called Gaga Waga Enterprises. Mm-hmm. Based on what one of my characters, Baby Diggy, what he says, Gaga Waga. <laughs> uh, yeah, one name that no one else had, believe it or not. And so, uh, just actually yesterday, Mark, to keep you current, we got a lawyer, which we were having a very hard time doing, an entertainment lawyer that we could afford, who's working with us on an agreement, which we're going to sign this week. And on Friday, we're going to give our funds. Uh, Seth raised a lot of money for this project through his connections. And, uh, we're going to uh, have a one-minute uh, sample produced, a teaser uh, of the flip show. It's a drawing show, getting kids to draw with shapes. And uh, the company that's doing it is called Studio Pigeon hmm. in Poland. Hmm. Studio Pigeon in Poland is going to pitch it for us at animation festivals, wow. hopefully, in the fall and in the spring. So that's that's um, that's where that that's what that's about. <laughs> and okay. that, you know, that's what I've been working on the list uh, here in a couple of years. So the goal is to get it on PBS, or how? how? Yes, yes, okay. yes, The goal is to get a network interested by looking at the Excuse me. something called the Bible that they're going to produce for us, mm-hmm. uh, which tells about the characters, what the characters, what they do, what they look like. And uh, what you do is you take it to these festivals, and there's representatives there from Nickelodeon, from Netflix, from Cartoon Network, from you know, all these, there's tons of networks now, and Disney, mm-hmm. whatever, and hopefully you'll get someone interested in it, and then, you know, then we'll see what happens. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dr. Seuss went into his 90s also, so hey, <laughs> you got some time. <laughs> yeah, it's true, it's true. And, and the guy who did Clifford the Big, Big, Big Red Dog. Oh, yeah. Norman Bridwell. He, he, yeah. Yes, he didn't make it until like, cause it was in the 70s or 80s or something when, when they finally bought his property for TV. So, right, right. You know, so, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, so that would be nice if that happens. You know, it may not, but I'm going to give it my best shot, Mark. You know, I'm not, I'm, as, as they say in Hamilton, I'm not throwing away my shot. I'll have to see that. I, you know, of course, you're in New York, so you can get, you can see almost anything if you want to. I suppose yeah, you know, it I doesn't always get out to Oregon here. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, well, maybe they'll do like a high school version or something. Yeah, that's true. Well, they do. The, here's what we get out here. We have this uh, best of Broadway, and that t- makes the tour that comes out here. So, but uh, they haven't done Hamilton yet, probably because Hamilton still makes money right now in New York. So it's like, you know, they don't travel it around until it starts dying. <laughs> you know, so I'll get. 
in a well, couple years. it's been years. in the big cities. It's been in London. It's been in, in yeah. Chicago. So it'll yeah. get there. But, you know, I've seen some great theater in small towns. We go up to Maine every year, and they, they have a wonderful theater in Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Where they do uh, you know, Broadway-type plays and stuff. So, you know, you can see good theater anywhere. Right. So but hopefully that's what, what I do recommend if you get a chance. It's, it's a masterpiece. All right. Very you know, good. It's a masterpiece, <laughs> of, of, which encourages dissent. It's a rare thing nowadays. Yeah. You know? And right, apart, so, uh, apart, apart from the uh, TV show, uh, any other projects in the works or anything else you want to discuss? Well, just, you know, I'm still working in the schools. Uh, we applied for about 14 grants to try and get schoolwork. Last year I had a very slow year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this year it's going to be a very good year because we got every grant, every grant that we applied for. So that's going to be good. I'll be work, doing a lot of schoolwork. Um, you know, I... Like I said, Mark, if I do sell my show, I will try and find a place for you somehow because I think you're very talented. All right. Well, I thank you very much. And I, love your, I love your knowledge of comics, and I think, you know, I don't know if you like to write or yes. something or what you'd like to do or something, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> somehow I'd like to bring all my friends in, my talented artistic yeah. friends. I can write, I can draw, probably not as good as you, but hey. <laughs> oh, no. Don't say that. I, I draw the way I draw that suits my, my writing. That's yeah. all I try to do. Yeah. To compliment my writing. I right. Know, any way you draw. And I like the Beatles, so hey, we're pals. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. We are Beatle brothers. Yeah. And I don't know if you are one last Beatle thing. I, I assume you're looking forward to the Abbey Road Extended Deluxo Super Special oh, yeah. Edition. You know? any, anything. Yes. yes. Sure. <laughs> so. How about you? That's coming out at the end of the um, month. I, so. <laughs> so I keep getting a lot of bulletins from Beatle Fest from Mark Lapito, the guy who puts on the oh, yeah. festival Beatle Fest. He sends me endless emails about what, what product that they're going to have available at a at, at much higher price than I want to pay. Of course. <laughs> so, Always. <laughs> I'm actually kind of happy Abbey Road, the special one, is a little bit less than the White Album, so I'm like, I don't have to go broke on this one. You know? <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I had I to get the Deluxo White Album, so it's like, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, these things have been buried for so long. We're still waiting for Let It Be. When is Let It Be coming out? They, well, they said they, yeah, it'll be soon. I mean, I can't believe well, it. Well, at least Peter Jackson's working on it. He's working on a different cut, so, you know, hopefully they'll put yeah. the, his version and then the original version. That's what I've heard. So it'll probably yeah. come out in 2020 because they have to do the 50th anniversary of the release, not, the, <laughs> not when it was filmed, so I get it. Right. <laughs> right, but but Mark Lewison had said that um, uh, that it shows, it, you know, they were afraid that it showed the Beatles breaking up and being mean to each other. He said it's not that way at all. He said if you see it, it's mostly them working harmoniously together. Yeah. He said he was so, so surprised. Well, even Peter Jackson has said in interviews, it's like the footage they didn't use even shows them even more harmonious. And, you know, it's like, it's almost like they put that one argument with George and Paul uh, just to kind of break it up a little bit it's like how are these guys so chummy you know it's like they certainly got to yeah. fight at some point you know <laughs> yeah. of course of course yes <laughs> they, did, they did very well together considering they were up each other's noses for, you know, for 10 years or, or more yeah. so considering uh, but that's the they're the Beatles you know there's no, nothing like them. I, I'm hoping for great things Lewis in the book? next year so <laughs> you know yeah yeah let's hope yeah. for you personally and for the, and everything else too sure. yes <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, do you have a website or a Facebook page or something that we can co- contact you? Um, well, I have a website, but it's it's very poor, and it's only for you know my flip characters. And the flip, if you want to purchase flip books and take a look at what the characters do, so uh, I would say no to that. You mm-hmm. can always call me or email me if you have any artistic questions. You know, but yeah, you. I guess it would be through my website, which is www.flipandmuzz.com. That's okay. my email and my phone number and everything. I haven't right. talked to anyone. And Flippin' Muzz is F-L-I-P-A-N-D-M-U-Z-Z, right? M-U-Z-Z, Okay. Two characters in the books based on me and my friend, Andrew Mussolini. My buddy. Wow. All right. I'm with Dean. Well, I am looking forward to more good projects coming from you and more Beatle projects and uh, anything else. And uh, I will have to, you know, I, you mentioned it earlier, I'm going to have to get that audio book because I started reading Turn On or which, what's it called? Turn On or Tune In or whatever? Tune In. Yeah. Tune in. I started reading it and I got about a fourth of a way through it, but I've never finished it because it's such a big book. And it's like, wow, or if I can listen audible. to it. Audible is good. It's like having someone read to you. Yeah. You know, like I my mom's 
reading me a story. That's how I think while I'm driving. So, and then, I, like I said, I've listened to it ten times. You've you got to get it. Get okay. it. it comes to life. The, the narrator is a guy named Clive Mantle. Oh. And he does a great job. And he also imitates the voices of the Beatles and of Brian Epstein and George Martin, and he does an amazing <laughs> job. Wow. The only one he doesn't do very well is Little Richard. That's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of a fail. But the other voices are uncanny, so All right. I highly recommend it. All right, very good. Okay, I want to thank you, Angelo, for being my guest today and uh, being on the podcast. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you again for listening, and thank you again, Angelo DeCessory, for being my special guest. Episode number 45 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much and have a good night. of your loot.